listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We have been in a sort of series that has been one of the series where we're following, I guess, what the Holy Spirit is revealing and showing. And... We've learned a lot about this concept, I guess, over the last few weeks as the Spirit has taken us in a particular direction of the building of spiritual culture, that the kingdom of God is the spreading of God's way in the world. And what I want to do tonight is transition from what we've been learning into the next season. And sometimes when you finish a series and you begin another one, it's a little bit clunky. But I think tonight there's actually a real seamlessness between where we've been and where we're going as we move into the season of Lent, which begins on Wednesday. And Lent is this remembering of Jesus' death upon the cross, his resurrection on the third day. And we symbolically walk that out over the next 40 days, stepping into Lent. So I encourage you to get the Lent booklets and join with us as we walk together. So in order to transition from where we've been to where we're going, and if we're renewing and rebuilding, we need to get the foundations right. Okay, so here's the conundrum. Are you ready? If we are merely human, if we as humans are frail and failing, compared to the majesty and the perfection of God, why are we chasing him. If Lent is a journey where we remember Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross for us in a show of love, why is the onus then on us to pursue Him? And does such an approach of seeking God's face then set us up for a poor foundation of faith and spiritual culture in which we fall into striving? Does this seeking God's face just become another thing to do, an extra burden in a society which demands high performance at all moments, often leaving us exhausted keeping up with its demands? How can we with work goals, study goals, busy lives, perhaps screaming toddlers, but almost definitely either written or non-written, never-ending list of to-dos, how can we find time to pursue God? Can't instead he just continually seek us at a less crazily busy time? So to boil this conundrum down to its simplest form, I would put it this way. How do we seek God's face when he's already found us? How do we seek God's face when he's already found us? Now getting this nuance right is essential. Understanding this truth is key. So to get there, we're going to turn to the book called Song of Songs, sometimes called Songs of Solomon, uh, and we're going to look at chapter 2. It's in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you'd like to, there's Bibles in front of you, uh, you can open up. And particularly, we're going to look at part of that past, that chapter, but we're going to focus in particular on one verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Now this is interestingly a verse which multiple people have had the Holy Spirit placed before them. As people at Red have been praying into Lent, this verse came front and center. Even after I preached this morning, I got a text message from someone who that also had this passage over the last few weeks. And when that happens, I've learned that it's really worth noting 
when the Spirit is pointing us to a particular scripture. Now, before, though, we dive into the book called The Song of Songs, I wanted to give a bit of a background because, in a sense, this book is slightly unusual if you're reading through the Old Testament and you're reading lots of history books and prophets and then you come across the Song of Songs, it comes as a little bit of a surprise. And that's because the Bible is a collection of books and some of those books have different genres or styles. Just as in movies there is sci-fi or action or thrillers or drama or documentary, the book has its own, uh, sorry, the Bible has its own genres. And so the Song of Songs is a collection of unashamed Hebrew love poetry, which illustrates how life in God can touch the vast scope of human experience, even romantic love. So it is love poetry, yet it's also more. It points beyond romantic love to a kind of romantic metaphor with which to examine faith and our relationship with God. Song of Songs takes the imagery of the romance between two young lovers to illustrate God's love for his people. Now this may seem a little bit strange at first, but it makes a lot more sense as we pull it apart. Song of Songs is using romance and desire as its chief subject matter, and this speaks to something deep and true about us as human beings. In the West, and our educational institutions and government communications echo this, that we often speak about humans as being primarily motivated and animated by ideas and principles. We think that in order to give someone transformation, we just need to give them more information. This is the idea that essentially you are what you think. Now there's truth to this. Ideas and information is important. Yet the romantic language of Song of Songs points to the way humans are instead primarily motivated by desires, reminding us that we become what we love and desire. Jamie Smith puts it this way, to be human is to be animated and orientated by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we count as flourishing. And we want that, we crave it, we desire it, This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is actually love. We are orientated by our longings and directed by our desires. Thus actually it's not as much what we think, it's what we love. And as someone who is in pastoral ministry and over number of years has had the opportunity to sit down with people struggling with different things, you increasingly find this situation where someone comes to you with a problem, they're doing something which they know is not helpful, it can even be destructive. And what's bizarre, I've sat there and people have looked at me and said, Mark, I'm doing X, but I am totally against X. I'm against X ideologically, morally. I know it's stupid, I know it's wrong, I know it's hurting me, I know it's hurting the people around me, yet I keep doing it. Their thought life is right, But what's running them aground is their heart's life. Their desires are disorientated. Thus, reading Song of Songs can today be quite shocking. Not because of its sometimes racy and provocative metaphors, and they are indeed there if you want to do a Bible study later on. But instead, 
Song of Songs is shocking to us today because of the fervency of the romantic love it describes. It's not erotic poetry as it's sometimes described. Rather, it speaks of desire, the anticipation of passionate love, yet it constantly stops at the moment before consummation. And the reason this is shocking is because today our culture is all consummation and no anticipation. From Married at First Sight, which is now, if you look at news.com.au, headline news, what happens in that show, to pornography, to the lyrics and musics of videos, and so music videos of contemporary pop music that sometimes you're walking down the aisle at Safeway with your kids and they're singing a song and you're like, hang on, what, what are you singing here? The delaying of gratification in physical love is almost completely alien now to contemporary Western culture. In fact, the entire social structure of courtship, of social spaces and rituals in which young couples would meet and woo each other, whilst normal across the cultures of the world, have almost been completely dismantled in Western culture subcontracted to artificial intelligence and algorithms in air-conditioned basements of Silicon Valley warehouses. Also intriguingly, and I read an article about this recently, the romantic genre, both in terms of romantic comedies as a movie genre and actually romantic fiction, is slowly disappearing as a genre a victim of our contemporary culture wars deemed problematic and politically incorrect by the gatekeepers of contemporary secular morality. Hollywood increasingly does not know how to now make a acceptable romantic comedy today. And the romance genre, which for years flourished, Mills and Boone made millions, has been destroyed by the Australian invention that we could probably do without Fifty Shades of Grey, the biggest, booking, the biggest selling book outselling the Bible in the 21st century. But I wonder if actually the romantic genre is disappearing more for another reason. Perhaps more so because their entire plots, particularly of romantic comedies, rom-coms, were based around the anticipation of love rather than the consummation of love, from Jane Austen to Meg Ryan. And even in the waiting, they still did it badly, collapsing into living happily ever after endings, which strangely reached for a kind of eternity, but fell short into a kind of cliched hallmark card. Song of Songs is different. Song of Songs is about the waiting, the anticipation. But it's also about a desirous pointing beyond earthly love to the eternal love of God. So that's your background to Song of Songs. I did sport in the podcast last week, now we're doing rom-coms. So, let's dive in. Song of Songs, 2 verse 8. This is a young woman speaking of her lover running to her. And it begins like this, listen, my beloved. What's more, listen, my beloved. Look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Song of Songs 2, 
verses 8 to 13. In this passage, the young man is symbolized by the strength and grace of a gazelle, and he comes bounding over the hills, pursuing his beloved. The language, the imagery shows us that he is wild and determined in his pursuit, yet he stops short of reaching his lover, instead gazing through the window, peering through the barrier of lattice, separating him from his betrothed. And this is an image which, to contemporary ears, could seem a little bit creepy, reminiscent of an ancient peeping Tom. <laughs> However, this could not be further from what is being communicated here and how hearers at the time would have heard it. This is not an unwanted gaze. The young woman recognizes that A, she is being truly seen and recognized, and B, that in being truly seen, she is loved and desired as she is. And in a time in which marriages were arranged by larger family structures, filled with negotiations by all kinds of different relatives and even village officials, the great fear was not that you would end up unmarried, but that you would find a husband but you would find yourself in a marriage which was loveless and mechanical, with an emotionally distant spouse. So to be betrothed, betrothed and yet still pursued and loved was the heart's desire of a young woman in Israel at this time. And this is not just a physical love, nor an exercise in objectification, or a song of songs doesn't shy away from physical attributes of people. It's in there if you read the book. But it points beyond that to the concept of being loved completely, with a love that dances in the space between heaven and earth. And if you've been following this series, you've learned that the overlap of heaven and earth in the biblical imagination is the temple, but not just the temple in Jerusalem, which was a building, not just the tabernacle, which was a tent, but actually also in Eden. And any time you see garden imagery, which was in the temple, carved into the walls, it points back to Eden. And so Song of Songs is filled with garden imagery. And it's using love here between these two lovers as an illustration of the temple in which humans find themselves in God's presence. The passage is pointing us towards God's wild and determined love for us. And here we come to the answer to the conundrum. How do we seek God's face when he sought us? Well, the answer is we can only seek God's face because he first sought ours. Last week, John Mark spoke of the Christian author A.W. Tozer's spiritual classic, the pursuit of God, and I, like him, encourage you to read that book. Let's see what he says of this matter. Before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. We pursue God and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. Jesus says in John's Gospel in chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Grasping these truths, we, like the young woman in Song of Songs, find ourselves wrestling then with the beautiful and challenging truth of a kind of love called grace. 
That is the idea that we are seen even in our ugliness and loved. That despite our rebellion and unfaithfulness, God still gazes at us with eyes of love. A number of years ago, I was walking through a park just in Cape Town, South Africa. It was a quiet morning and I was looking through the park at the sort of skyline and it is a beautiful skyline with Table Mountain behind it of Cape Town. And as I was walking and trying to soak in this beautiful city, into my path, something in the foreground completely shocked me. Jumping in my way was a fully grown adult springbok, which is a cousin of the gazelle. Now, I don't know, I haven't, you know, I'm not South African, so I don't know if this is a normal occurrence, like an Australian version of a possum that you see going along the wires, which may shock someone from overseas, but just like, it's another possum. But having never seen a springbok before or anything like a gazelle outside of a zoo, seeing it in the wild stopping me so suddenly, it elicited this response in me. It was graceful, it did bound, and it stopped almost silently. And my response was to be paralyzed in a kind of awe. There was nothing I could say, I just stopped and stared. And that's what God's love does to us, that's what grace elicits in us. God's sacrificial death for us on a Roman cross cannot but elicit a response. St. Augustine of Hippo wrote in his spiritual biography, autobiography, let me know you, for you are the God who knows me. Let me recognize you as you have recognized me. He grasped that the love of God requires a response, worship. Worship is an awe-filled response to the grace of God. Now, it took a while for Augustine to get there, Raised by his Christian mother, he turned from his faith, seeking thrills, love, and recognition elsewhere. A fourth century North African example of what Dave Kinnaman in his book Faith for Exiles and what we talked about in a previous recent series here called A Prodigal, someone who is dispensed with the faith of their youth. That was Augustine. So his response to God's grace, one that he'd grown up with, so in a sense it was less shocking was actually rejection. And instead, Augustine chose to chase happiness in the immediate pleasures of the world. Yet as he came out of his 20s, the spring of delights soon turned into a barren winter, in which he, in his own words, set about sowing more and more seeds whose only crop was grief. As God pursued this prodigal, Augustine would come to realize that his heart would remain restless until it found its home in God. He came to understand that he was attempting to fill the God-shaped hole in his soul with the things of earth. Instead of looking for the creator, he was looking at the created things. After sowing his wild oats and having many relationships, he would choose a life of singleness, grasping something that our contemporary world with its obsession on consummation rather than anticipation deeply struggles with. That the absences of this world, when our desires are unmet, 
though difficult, though sometimes really, really gutting and hard, actually point our gaze beyond this life to God who is our eternal home. Augustine had spent the first half of his life pursuing love, but he'd missed the greatest truth that the God of love was pursuing him. And the whole of life flows from this truth. Augustine learnt that worship is seeking in response to being sought. Later in life, Augustine, the pursued and beloved, would write this beautiful recollection. I have learnt to love you late. Beauty at once so ancient and so new. I've learnt to love you late. The beautiful things of this world kept me far from you, and yet if they had not been in you, they would not have had, in, they would not have had no being at all. You called me, you cried aloud to me, you broke my barrier of deafness. You shone upon me, your radiance enveloped me, you put my blindness to flight. You showed your fragrance about me. I drew breath and now I gasped for your sweet odor. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am inflamed with the love of your peace. This is deeply romantic language, but not romantic human love language. This is eternal language. Tozer writes, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in the happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Now we're getting somewhere. Children of the burning heart. The satisfied religionists rest their believing of the, on the right beliefs while being undermined by desiring the wrong things. A recipe for hypocrisy. Children of the burning heart believe the right things, but they fix their deepest desires upon God. They get that we become what we love. Thus they make him the primary focus of their desires, understanding that we with our human powers are unable to love in the way the world needs us to. The children of the burning heart burn with light and love because through desiring him, they're reflecting his light and love with an eternal ferocity in a darkened world. So worship is the decision to orientate our primary desires and love towards God, to love as we have been loved. Now this is a vision which equips us and shows us the way forward to how do we at Red, how do we in this congregation, how do we at this time build a true culture of worship? We get a glimpse now of a plan with which to carve out thin places between heaven and earth with our worship. For true worship changes atmospheres. Firstly, in our inner world, our hearts as they're realigned with God's true value of us, we are remade as he loves us. We see ourselves as God sees us. We recognize that true worship flows from a soul loved by God. This is true worship, a whole of life response to God's pursuit of us. Get this wrong and we can end up with a bad rip-off version of Christianity filled with striving, performance, negativity, inward judgment on ourselves that we're not good enough, that we're unlovable, that we don't deserve God's grace, but also outward judgmentalism which deflects and points at other people. In short, a love which always falls short of the mark. 
Instead, let's worship in our inner temples as a response to his pursuit of you. And that you I'm using is corporate, but it's also laser pointed actually at you. I recognize that by Monday lunchtime tomorrow, that much of this sermon you may have forgotten. It's okay. I try my best with my sermons, but I recognize the limitations of preaching that often someone will say, what did you preach on Sunday? People can't remember. So I'm humble enough to understand that things will be forgotten. But I hope one thing will be remembered. That you, that he loves you. That's my sermon. In a couple of words. He loves you. And that is the most important thing in the universe. When we get this, we can also truly worship in the atmospheres in the outer world, here at church, in the world, we together are laying a foundation for a culture of true worship. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And as people ask me, you know, what is the church meant to be at this time in history in a place like Melbourne? Increasingly, that's my answer. I can give you all kinds of interesting thoughts and different theories, put them on a podcast. But really, that's actually increasingly what I believe. That what God is calling us to do here, our response at this moment is to respond as we have been loved and to worship in truth and spirit and that God is looking for worshipers. It's utterly brilliant to have people like John Mark visit us. We've had different speakers over the years, people who are Christian famous. But we're also at a moment where I actually think the next big thing that God is doing, the renewal that he wants to do in the world, is not gonna come from people who are Christian famous. They've got their role to play. But it's actually gonna come from ordinary people. The kind of worshipers the fathers seek. The people who have worshiped in the hidden places sacrifice behind closed doors, followed the Father when it's hard and when it hurts, sung for joy when it's wonderful. And so God is calling us to this kind of true worship. I love this description from Tom Wright. Worship is humble and glad. Worship forgets itself in remembering God. Worship celebrates the truth as God's truth, not its own. True worship doesn't put on a show or make a fuss. True worship isn't forced, isn't half-hearted, doesn't keep looking at its watch. It doesn't worry about what the person in the next pew is doing. True worship is open to God, adoring God, waiting for God, trusting God even in the dark. And as we build a culture of response and worship to God's love, we're drawn by Jesus out of the barren spiritual desert that is all around us and into a kind of holy bloom. And we see this holy bloom in the second part of the passage in Song of Songs chapter two. But the young woman says, my beloved spoke to me and said, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. 
See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. This is romantic language, but this is also temple language. This is the language in which God invites us into a new season at this moment when so many people and prognosticated, prognosticated, can't even say it's the third service, people who predict are actually saying, it's barren, the sky is falling in. No. The beloved comes and she recognizes that she is pursued and loved. And she is invited, she being you, she being the church, she being the people of God, whether they're here in Blackburn or they're in East Asia, as we just heard about, in a people group with only a handful of people know the name of Jesus. God is calling his people to a moment of flourishing. For something is activated us in us when we grasp that we are the loved. Something is released. Yet, in that first passage, there's the lattice. There's the barrier, the wall. And there's something in us which needs to take that step of response. To actually step into the season. In Europe, they have very different front doors in many places. In Australia, where walk through our front door, often we have a fly wire, because that's what we're dealing with. But in Europe, it's actually the cult. You come in, and often there's this door, and then you come into this little, there's a vestibule, and you take off your shoes that have perhaps been in the snow, and you take off your coat, and then you have a second door, which protects, I guess, the carpet from your shoes, where somewhere to put your coat, but it really protects you from the cult. And sometimes, and perhaps now, we can be gathering in the vestibule. That little place where it's really only made for coats and boots. We're not in the cold of the street, but also not in the warmth and the expanse of the house that God has built for us. So I believe at this moment that what God wants to do in this Lent season, as we remember the cross, the ultimate sign of his love for us, is to release something new in us actually build true worship as we grasp his love for us. You are pursued. You are loved. You are desired by God who bounds over mountains and hills and through deserts and pursues you even when we run for him. And he looks on you with eyes of love. And so the response is not one of work, striving, more things to do, Rather, it's just to respond in a natural overflow of joy of being found. That's the vision for the kind of worship of spirit and truth that God wants to do at this moment. Love. This is all about his love for us. So we're going to do that now. We're going to worship. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. and I'm going to pray. Father, that central truth that you love us even when we feel unlovable even when we feel beyond the pale even when we feel that we are unredeemable that the scripts get hold of us that we feel that we don't measure up even when we just feel ugly and unclean you love us that on the cross 
you died for us. That you, the creator of stars and systems and mountains and continents, still love us. And that you jump over mountains, bound over hills, filled with desire for us. And Father, may we desire you. May our response be of love to you, Jesus. I pray for any of us who may be in the vestibule, in that weird bit between the outside road and the inside of the house. May our response now be to with love, seek you because you sought us. Let's stand.